Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 6th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardown. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. For today's show, I'm very excited to be joined by Michael Dorff, professor at Cornell Law School. He's a constitutional law scholar and a prolific writer on, among many issues, the Second Amendment and its shifting contours. Since in the wake of February's mass shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida, a national conversation has coalesced around some potential legislative pass forward on gun policy, like expanded background checks, a raised minimum buying age, and a ban on semi-automatic weapons, I invited Professor Dorf to speak about the present state of the Second Amendment doctrine that any such laws would meet. As part of unpacking what the Second Amendment means today, we discuss how its meaning has changed since the founding, and really within just the past few decades, during which time questions over an individual versus a collective gun right, the types of arms that are protected, and the level of scrutiny applied to gun laws have all been hashed out, giving rise to answers of varying clarity and a doctrine still bearing a somewhat nebulous character. In addition to being a Second Amendment scholar, Professor Dorf also was once a law clerk for Judge Stephen Reinhardt course, the liberal fixture who to no small measure helped define the Ninth Circuit over the course of his nearly 40 years on its bench until his passing last week. Professor Dorf will discuss the impact Judge Reinhardt had on him and on the law and on the jurist profession. But before hearing from Professor Dorf, let's get to this week's opening briefs. It was a fairly quiet week in the Ninth Circuit opinion-wise, but the Supreme Court issued two reversals of the circuit's decisions on Monday. One, a 5-4 ruling in an employment law case where the majority found exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act's overtime pay requirements a group of service advisors, a Southern California car dealership. That law requires that employers pay overtime to employees that work over 40 hours in a given week. The plaintiffs here reliably worked around 55 hours, but Justice Thomas's majority opinion felt a straightforward reading of a statutory exemption rendered the plaintiffs ineligible for the overtime pay. Justice Ginsburg wrote for a cohort of Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan and argued that courts, as the Ninth Circuit did here, should construe exemptions to the Fair Labor Standards Act's requirements narrowly. And she wrote that the majority's broader reading Monday moves the court away from its earlier recognition of the particularity of the FLSA's exemptions. And in a summary reversal issued without argument or briefing, a per curiam group of seven justices slapped down a Ninth Circuit qualified immunity ruling, an appeal in which the Ninth Circuit had failed to dispose of the case based on the qualified immunity doctrine, which of course protects law enforcement officers from civil rights suits brought by plaintiffs whose constitutional rights were violated by those defendant officers. The court, as in many recent qualified immunity reversals, acknowledged that the plaintiff's rights were violated. Here, the plaintiff was a Tucson, Arizona woman shot multiple times as she stood in a residential front yard while holding a kitchen knife, though when she had not wielded threateningly towards another woman present, nor towards the defendant officer who was separated from the woman by a locked gate. Nonetheless, the procurium opinion deemed that no prior precedent clearly put the officer on notice that his actions were a constitutional violation. Incensed, Justice Sotomayor dissented along with Justice Ginsburg to write that the court's forgiving qualified immunity approach recommends to law enforcement officers that they need not worry about shooting first and asking questions later. If you're interested in this area of doctrine, I hope you'll tune in to our program next week. We'll speak with an expert from the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice and some others about this evolving area of law. 
One more item, the California Supreme Court issued its own split decision this week, finding Monday, in a 4-3 majority opinion authored by Justice Kruger, that it was reasonable under the California Constitution to require a defendant they are charged with and later convicted of arson to submit to a DNA cheek swab as part of his arrest booking. The requirement was enacted as part of a 2004 voter initiative designed to aid the resolution of unsolved crimes and identify innocent inmates. The majority stressed the limited nature of its holding and expressly noted that other criminal procedure contexts may exist where compulsory DNA collection is unreasonable under the state's constitution. Guiding at least in part the majority's holding was a recent U.S. Supreme Court case upholding a similar booking procedure. Justice Liu, joined by Justices Cuellar and assigned Justice Perlis, dissented arguing that requiring that DNA be taken from arrested felony defendants whose arrests may turn out to be unlawful or, who in many instances aren't charged or convicted, is clearly unreasonable and a violation of California's Constitution. <music> Professor Michael Dorff is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. He's a prolific constitutional law scholar writing on, among many topics, the ever-shifting contours of the Second Amendment. He maintains, and he maintains a well-patronized eponymous law blog, Dorf on Law. Delighted to welcome him today to speak about the state, the Second Amendment, and also about his former boss, the late Judge Stephen Reinhardt. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you've joined us uh, principally today to speak on uh, an area of constitutional law um, that, that's pretty salient at the moment, and one to, uh, towards which you dedicated quite a bit of, of brain power and scholarly attention over the past couple of decades. It's the the Second Amendment and its its contours. Um, but before turning to that timely topic, we'd be remiss not to touch on another one, a, a sad one, the the passing last week of Judge Stephen Reinhardt, um, longtime stalwart of the Ninth Circuit, regarded as the the liberal lion, appointed in 1979 by President Jimmy Carter. Um, you, you clerked for Judge Reinhardt, I think your first year out of law school, um, and have cited him in, in your writing as a, a particularly formative mentor, right? Um, if you don't mind, if you could just share some sort of general reflections on your time with, with the judge, maybe what you admired about him, learned from him in terms of any personal things or, or, or legal, um, things and, and just generally what your uh, experience was with them and how it impacted you uh, professionally and, and personally. Sure. So uh, I would say that not a day goes by that I don't act on some piece of either advice I got directly from Judge Reinhardt or a habit that I picked up from him. Uh, he was an extraordinarily important mentor to me as he was to all of the law clerks who uh, had the good fortune to serve for him during his many years on the bench. Um, I'll just name uh, a few. Um, most of them, interestingly, do not have anything to do with ideology or values other than, I would say, the, the value of very hard work. Uh, so I'll start with a couple of those, and then I'll, I'll shift to something that uh, might sound a little bit more having to do with ideology. Uh, so the first is, you know, I came to Judge Reinhardt thinking that I was a pretty good writer. I uh, had done a lot of writing in college. I did a lot of writing in law school. I did journal work. I did moot court. I had written uh, an article and co-authored a book with one of my professors in law school. So I thought I knew how to write. And, um, you know, I remember the first time I gave a draft to Judge Reinhardt on 
a case that uh, he was working on with the rest of the judges on the panel. And uh, he called me in, and I saw that he had, you know, crossed out, I would say, about 80% of what I had written and had arrows and other things there. And uh, I would learn over the course of the year that that's how he did everything, uh, so that it was common for him to go through easily a dozen drafts of an opinion or a dissent or a concurrence uh, or, or even a memorandum to one of his colleagues about uh, a case that wasn't going to be published because he wanted to make sure that everything that went out of his chambers was exact, said exactly what he wanted to say. Uh, some of that, when it was work product for the, the public, was because he wanted to get the law right, um, even if it was a case that didn't have uh, large ramifications, I think he felt it was a duty that he owed to the parties to explain what they were doing. And then he wanted to make the law clear for lower court judges. Um, he was not a flowery writer, but he placed an extraordinary emphasis on clarity. You know, if you had wrote a, uh, a sentence and you were, you were fudging a little bit, he would always spot that and, uh, and, and want to fix it. So I, I learned from that, you know, the importance of uh, rewriting as really an essential piece of writing. Uh, a second lesson I learned from him was uh, just from a piece of advice he, he always gave. He would, um, he, he would say that, you know, you never know what arguments are going to be persuasive to other people. So he, he got this out of his own practice. He said on more than one occasion, he had been representing a client and, on appeal, and you make a, you write a brief, you put your best arguments first. He said, but if there's any colorable argument, include it. Because you might think, well, this really isn't a very strong argument. It's not sanctionably frivolous, but it's, it's, not, it's not in your top three or even your top six. But he said, always include it, because you never know that might be what appeals to somebody, uh, to a judge. Uh, and, of course, he was one of the judges, but he was thinking about his colleagues. He was thinking about what the Supreme Court might do with their cases, what a non-bank court might do. And so it was a, an effort to sort of see a case from every angle and to see every possible argument for, for either side. I guess the final thing I would say is that uh, Judge Reinhardt really modeled how to think about the relationship between law as a, you know, something that's on the books and that guides us and constrains us and values. That is, he would, you know, if he had a case uh, that he had to decide uh, in conjunction with uh, his colleagues, he would he would want to know what the just result was, but you know he also he started with the law. So uh, I think about this in connection with something that Judge Posner has written uh, on a number of occasions, which is Judge Posner says, well, the way that he decides a case is he he starts by asking what would be a good outcome that a sensible person would reach in this dispute, regardless of the law, and then see if there's anything in the law that prevents you from getting there. Uh, and if not, write it up that way. And, you know, I, I think that's how most people who 
uh, are critical of another judge's work, imagine that those other judges work. I would say that that's not actually how Judge Reinhardt worked. He always started with the law, but he was such a good lawyer that he knew where the spaces were in the law and where there was legitimately space he filled that with a kind of humane understanding uh, and empathy for the people whose disputes he was charged with adjudicating yeah so that that sort of nuanced point that nuanced approach is something that that you cite in a, a piece that you wrote on your blog eulogizing judge reinhardt this week um where you make a pretty pointed defense uh, against that that charge that is fairly commonly leveled, or at least sometimes leveled against him, that he was more outcome oriented, that that he did care more about a, a just result, sort of no matter which uh, way the the law pointed. Um, and so, I guess could you unpack further that that defense? I know you cite um, one one counterfactual from back in 1988 when he, he, he did rule uh, sort of against what he thought was the just result in a, a case dealing with um, gay and lesbian folks in, in the military, right? Yeah, so that was the Watkins case in which um, he actually dissented from a decision by his colleagues that ruled for a gay serviceman who was being excluded from the army uh, under what was then the official policy, which was that, uh, in the Army's terms, quote, homosexuality is incompatible with military service. And Judge Reinhardt made very clear that if he were on the Supreme Court, he would find that that policy denied equal protection of the laws in violation of the Fifth Amendment, which is how you get equal protection applicable to the federal government, uh, but that he was constrained by Supreme Court precedent, and he thought that there was uh, no fair way to reconcile his view of the constitutionally correct outcome with the case law from the Supreme Court, even though uh, some of his colleagues thought that it could be reconciled. They drew what was at the time a, uh, a fashionable distinction between laws that discriminate on the basis of status, like the army rule, and laws that forbid certain conduct. And Judge Reinhardt, I think, was of the view that uh, neither of those made any sense. That is to say that the government shouldn't be allowed to uh, discriminate on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or to uh, prescribe uh, what people, what consenting adults do in their bedrooms, but that the two were connected. Now, maybe he was right about that, maybe he was wrong. My point is only that he saw the law as constraining him there um, in a way that made him feel very uncomfortable, and that he, you know, he took a lot of heat from uh, some of his colleagues and some, some people in the media about that. Uh, and then the same thing, roughly, in a totally different context, happened last fall uh, in a case in which the Trump administration was removing a, a man who was an undocumented immigrant, but who'd been here for many, many years, uh, was actually a consultant for the government because of his expertise. He had citizen, U.S. citizen children on the ba basis that many years ago he had been uh, convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol, uh, which technically made him removable. But uh, Judge Reinhardt thought that any sensible approach to enforcing the law ought to forbear from removal. 
and uh, you know, but he 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 understood that under the law as written, he couldn't he couldn't order the relief that was sought, and so he concluded a very powerful uh, concurrence in that case by saying that as a judge I concur, but as a citizen I do not. Uh, and so I, I think I think that that's that, I don't think this makes Judge Reinhardt extraordinary. I think the vast majority of Article Three judges uh, conceive their role in this way. That is to say, that they understand that sometimes the law, as written either by Congress or as interpreted by the Supreme Court, leads to an unjust result, and there's nothing you can do about it. My point is simply that. Um, the people who claim that Judge Reinhardt was somehow extraordinary in rejecting that view in favor of the view that he gets to do whatever he wants and be a kind of liberal dictator uh, either are totally unfamiliar with his work or are, you know, simply uh, making stuff up. Yeah, I recall that concurrence, and there certainly was no mistaking who, who wrote it. Um, he was fairly regularly, or at least in many instances, he was reversed by the Supreme Court, but you, you do write that that's more of a function of the Supreme Court sort of moving to the right over the past few decades and, and less that uh, he was just disobeying standing Supreme Court order precedent. Right? Yeah, I mean, a way to think about it is that if Judge Reinhardt had been on the Supreme Court, he would have been dissenting in the cases uh, in which he was reversed as an appeals court judge. Uh, and he wouldn't be dissenting on the ground that we ought to change the law. He would be dissenting on the ground that he thought the law, uh, meaning the existing precedents, the constitutional text and so forth, best understood, um, already provided for the result that, that he saw. It's just that the court is, you know, has, was, and uh, still is to the right of where Judge Reinhardt was. Um, you know, he would sometimes say, not entirely jokingly, that there are no liberals on the current Supreme Court, uh, by which he meant the Supreme Court as we know it now, as we knew it 10 years ago, as we knew it 20 years ago, because he was judging, you know, liberality by reference to the standards uh, applicable during the Warren Court period. Uh, so, you know, I don't think he was very different in how he would have voted from Justice Brennan or Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall, and and that was his standard. It's just that the the court continued to move to the right, and so uh, even the liberals were to his right, and they would therefore reverse him when they when they took his cases most of the time. Um, just one other thread I wanted to pull out from from your requiem for for Judge Reinhardt is is the the idea and and. The fact that you, you take some exception with the argument that um, where a judge um, rules with his heart or judges with his heart, um, it's sort of a zero-sum proposition, meaning that he he does he or she does less so than with his or her brain. Um, could you just un un unpack that? Sure. So um, you know there there the there's this folk wisdom right about how people are liberal in their youth and then conservative as they get older, or that it's sort of the, the conservative position is the sort of hard-headed position against the kindly-hearted position. And um, I think it, that uh, this is not true as a general matter, that if you certainly look at our politics over the last decade and certainly over the last few years, you see that it is more commonly the liberals who are sort of fact and evidence based, not not to a person and not universally, but that that has been the sort of general direction of our politics. But even within the law, 
there is uh, this tendency of conservative critics of liberal judges to say, well, you're just sort of giving in to emotion or to your feelings. Uh, you saw this a little bit during the controversy over Justice Sotomayor's nomination when uh, President Obama had said that he wanted a judge who had empathy, and some of the Republican senators thought that, no, well, empathy isn't appropriate for judging. You want a judge who's perfectly neutral. Um, and, and I just think the whole dichotomy is mistaken. We know from uh, sort of neuropsychology that uh, ordinary reasoning typically engages the emotional centers of the brain so that uh, if you people who have some, suffered some sort of impairment to their emotional centers have very difficult times making decisions about things that we might not even think have a lot of uh, value inputs. Uh, and that's because it's just a mistake to think of the intellectual faculties and the emotional faculties, or if you will, uh, reason and uh, emotion, or reason and empathy, as entirely separate. And so Judge Reinhardt uh, engaged both his intellectual and emotional centers, to the extent that those are separate at all, uh, in his work. And so you, you got, uh, I think, very sophisticated, very carefully reasoned, but humane decisions from him. Yeah. Just to turn very briefly to, to one other prominent jurist before we get into the, the Second Amendment, you spent a, a second year clerking then for Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Um, I'd be curious just to, to get your sense of, you know, at that point you were there fairly early in his tenure. I think he'd only been there for a handful of years when you clerked for him. And not that this would necessarily be, I thought that would cross your mind terribly often at the time, but did you have any sense of the trajectory of his tenure on the court and, and any sense of the way in which he would come to be pretty darn central and perhaps the most determinative or sort of uh, formative justice in terms of American jurisprudence and really governance over this past generation. I suppose maybe his liberal or his uh, kind of the libertarian streak through his ideology might suggest that he would be the sort of judge that could swing back and forth on different issues. But uh, did, did you have any idea that he would kind of become the justice that he became? Uh, you know, I guess I didn't know who the presidents would be, so I didn't have a sense of where the center of the court would be. I mean, I clerked for Judge Reinhardt in 1990 to 91, and then Justice Kennedy, 91 to 92. And so while that was relatively early in Justice Kennedy's tenure on the Supreme Court, he had already been a judge for a pretty long time because he was on the Ninth Circuit for a substantial period before that. So he had fairly well-formed views. And as you indicate, I think it's fair to say that those views haven't changed that much over the years. He's, um, I would say, a fair way to describe him is a sort of California Republican, right? That is to say he's libertarian on many issues. He's skeptical of uh, big government in the way that what we think of as sort of economic libertarians are, although those issues tend not to come before the Supreme Court, but it, it makes him a bit of a stickler on separation of powers and federalism issues. Um, but he's also a civil libertarian, um, and that, you know, you, you see that most prominently in the LGBT rights cases where he is the author of all of the leading uh, cases recognizing uh, such rights. As far as him being in the middle, so first of all, uh, he would hate the term swing justice, and I, I know you didn't 
mean it in the way that sometimes people do, which is to say that somebody who's sort of wishy-washy and blows with the wind, I think it's rather that um, somebody's got to be in the middle, and because he's that that has been him for most of the time on the court, he ends up casting a decisive vote. I should say that for uh, when I was a law clerk, and I guess until 2005, when Justice O'Connor retired, she was the median justice a little bit more frequently than he was, um, although it, depending on the issue, he might be. Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, since 2005, and for some of the time from when he was appointed until then, uh, he was the median justice. So yeah, for a period of roughly 30 years now, his vote has been crucial. But if I can be permitted a, a basketball analogy, I'd like to say that that's a that's a sort of odd way to look at it. So um, you may recall that uh, Shaquille O'Neal was a notoriously bad free throw shooter. And uh, when asked about this, uh, Shaq would occasionally say, well, I make them when they count, <laughs> uh, by which he meant, you know, with a few, like a, a minute or less to go in the game, uh, he would make his free throws. Now, first of all, that wasn't true. He wasn't a better free throw shooter at the end of games than earlier in the games. Uh, I mean, so much so that they had to change the rules gover governing this. But but even if it were true that he made them when they counted, well, that's a foolish way to think about the game. They all count in that the final score is a product of the, you know, the the points you score throughout the game, not just the ones at the end of the game. And so it might be that Justice Kennedy ends up being, you know, the fifth vote on this, that, or the other case. But uh, that's just a product of how we count all of the other the other four justices in that majority could also be thought of as the fifth vote. It's just that we we're taking them for granted. So they're like the free throws earlier in the game. We can move on to the Second Amendment. I'd, I'd like sure. to, but uh, I, I, I will refrain from inquiring whether you have any inside information as to Justice Kennedy's plans for October uh, term 2018. Oh, you, you can ask that question because the answer is no. I, I, <laughs> I, have, I have no inside information. Sure. Okay. Um, then getting to the, to the Second Amendment, obviously uh, uh, many different and important and salient questions have come up. Um, surrounding the, the amendment and its contours really every time, um, or at least in particular, every time there is a, a mass shooting in the country over the past several years. The most recent one in, in Florida at the high school in, in Parkland has seemed to spark a more prolonged national debate and maybe uh, even a shift in sort of the politics surrounding it. But in terms of some, some legal questions with the Second Amendment, let's back up to an article you wrote in 2000, which was titled, What Does the Second Amendment Mean Today? Um, and so at, at that point in, in 2000, it did seem like the most salient questions about the amendment and its contours were, were a bit different. Maybe the, the most um, critical one being whether or not there even was an individual right to, uh, to own and possess firearms guaranteed by the Second Amendment, or whether instead the amendment just guaranteed sort of groups of collective citizens like well-regulated militias the ability to to possess uh, arms with the thought that they could uh, rise up against a tyrannical national government. It seems a, a bit quaint to recall a time or think of a time when we didn't sort of agree that there was an individual right to take on ownership. But that, that was a pretty open question, right? Even perhaps there was a consensus that the collective right was the right reading of the amendment. Sure. So prior to 2008, when the Supreme Court decided District of Columbia against Heller, there was this debate about whether the Second Amendment protected any individual right because of what's sometimes called the prefatory clause or the preamble. In any event, it's that first 
phrase that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, dot, 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 and then it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But the, the, that first part uh, was regarded by many people, especially in light of the historical context that led to the uh, proposal and adoption of the Second Amendment as limiting the meaning of the second part. That is to say, it was in the context of uh, people fearing standing armies and wanting to uh, ensure that militias, by which they generally meant something like uh, what we would now call state national guard troops, but you can think of the Minutemen in colonial times, right, that those were that was the primary basis for national self-defense, so that you wouldn't have uh, standing armies, and so they didn't want the federal government abolishing the militia. So that was the, the sort of standard view at the time by people who believed in a so-called collective right. And collective meaning exercised under the auspices of state governments. But it had been subject to a lot of criticism by gun libertarians arguing that, no, actually, if you look at the history more carefully, you see that the way in which militias were to be preserved was through uh, private ownership of guns. The Minutemen show up uh, when Paul Revere calls them, and they've already got their weapons, and they've got those weapons because those weapons are protected as a matter of right. And so that was the state of debate. The Supreme Court hadn't really weighed in on it definitively in a long time. There were a couple of cases from the late 19th century that said that there's no right to bear arms of an individual as against the state, but those cases predated incorporation of the Bill of Rights, and so it wasn't clear what value they had after the Supreme Court in the 1960s found that most of the provisions of the Bill of Rights apply against the states and not just the federal government. The leading case involving the federal government was a case called Miller, which uh, was for many years earlier as well, involved a sawed-off shotgun, and the lead opinion by the Supreme Court says, well, there's no evidence that a sawed-off shotgun has any connection to military use, so it's not protected. Uh, and this was cited by both sides. The individual right people said, aha, well, if it did have a connection to military usage, then uh, you would have a private right to possess it. And uh, I think the uh, view that was more dominant, at least prior to Heller, was no, 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 no. All the court was saying there was that you're not using this in a military context, and so this weapon is not protected. They weren't addressing the question of whether some other weapon, which might be available for military use, is also protected when not being used for the military. But in any event, that was the state of uh, the law, as I say, prior to 2008. Uh, I wrote an article for a symposium in which I uh, said that I frankly found the whole debate somewhat puzzling because just based on the text and the history, I, I did think that the people who thought the Second Amendment was essentially a right of states was a better argument, but I found it puzzling because um, it, it looked to me like the people who were worried about standing armies didn't get what they wanted out of the Second Amendment. After all, if their worry was that the national government would have standing armies, well, that's come to pass. We have um, a, a permanent uh, army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, and not only that, the text of the Constitution says that 
when the uh, state units of the National Guard or the militia are called up, they are under the command of the president. And so that does look like you have both the potential for uh, standing armies, uh, which was realized, and the sort of nationalization of uh, the militias. And that all happened consistent with the Second Amendment, and nobody has has contested that, and I don't think it's fairly contestable. So it, to, to me, it's, it's very puzzling, because the Second Amendment doesn't seem to fulfill its core purpose. On the other hand, this other purpose, which has been retrofitted as a right to individual self-defense, doesn't seem to fit with its text or history. And so I ended up then, as, as I sort of still am, as, you know, in, in, as a matter of what's the best interpretation, if you put aside the doctrine, I end up saying that the best interpretation is that they sort of didn't realize what they were doing when they wrote the Second Amendment. Yeah, those are some interesting mismatches. Um, now, in, in Heller, if the Supreme Court decides that that ind individual right is guaranteed, and we can note parenthetically in a five to four decision, of course, um, it still remains to be defined just what uh, what arms are entailed in the individual right to bear arms. And and so I think you wrote recently in a, um, a reflection on the, the 46th Federalist paper, uh, um, one written by James Madison, to assure sort of anti-federalists that they would always have the, the right and the ability to bring arms and, and insurrect against a, uh, a national government that might take on a tyrannical um, King George type mean. Um, and, and if that is the, 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 the germ that bore the Second Amendment, the, the purpose behind it, that would suggest that the arms it, it must protect are the ones capable of overthrowing the national government. Of course, the kind of arms that would be required to do that now are pretty massive, pretty extreme type weapons. Um, and in, in the opinion, Justice Scalia notes that instead the arms protected are, are more commonplace, small-scale ones, those in, in common use, um, legal arms bore by citizens that can be used for self-defense in the home and in hunting. So as you say, that, that sort of detaches the, the modern doctrine from the purpose of the original amendment. And, and if that's the case, what exactly is that modern doctrine built on then? So let me back up a little bit to answer that, if I can. There's a very good article that uh, Reva Siegel, who's a professor at Yale Law School, wrote shortly after Heller, in which she goes through how the experience of the 1990s, including especially the Oklahoma City bombing, made people uh, sort of give up on the insurrectionist view of the Second Amendment. Now, not everybody has given up on that, right? There are still people, um, especially in places like the interior West, if I think about the sort of Clive and Bundy group, um, who, you know, uh, who will think of the Second Amendment as a right to insurrection. But for the most part, um, when lawyers were arguing for an individual right to own and possess firearms uh, in the courts, they de-emphasized this insurrectionary idea, even though, as I say in this piece, uh, right, if you look at the writing at the time, it's pretty clear that that's got a closer connection to the purpose of what becomes the Second Amendment than does protection against private violence, which is what's at issue in Heller. And so the question is, so, so what's, you know, how do we make sense of this disconnect? And I, I think there are a number of things you might say. One is, you might regard 
the argument that that you've sort of alluded to as a kind of reductio ad absurdum. So you say, look, the core purpose of the Second Amendment is so people have arms to rise up against an oppressive federal government. In the modern era, that means they have to have access to sophisticated military weaponry, at least the sort that an individual can possess. That would include things certainly like M1 rifles, which are machine guns. It would include things like the uh, rocket-propelled grenades that could be shoulder-launched, all sorts of things that we uh, think are, of, of course, inappropriate in a civilian society. And therefore, aha, that shows that the Second Amendment can't protect an individual right uh, enforceable by the courts, and so it's a reductio and, and Heller is wrongly decided. Another way to look at it, and I think this is what Justice Scalia is doing in Heller, is to say, well, yes, that was the uh, one of the original purposes of codification of the right. Was Maybe it was the primary purpose, was to protect uh, a right of collective insurrection. But at the time, nobody would have shown up for militia service with the equivalent uh, in the 18th century of an RPG because, you know, the there were basically pistols, there were rifles, and there were cannon. An individual, you know, a cannon might be the equivalent, but, it, you know, an individual wouldn't can walk along with a cannon just by himself. Uh, and so we infer from this uh, principle that uh, it protects the sorts of arms you would have for personal defense that were also available uh, for militia service. And he says if that causes a mismatch between the original purpose for codifying the right and the way the right gets exercised today, uh, he essentially says, close enough for government work. You know, that that's really, it's not our job to make it fit perfectly. We just have to construe the, the text as it is. Now, I'm not persuaded by that. I think a better understanding is the first one, actually, that, you know, you look at the purpose, and if fulfilling the purpose doesn't make any sense, then you don't just sort of say, well, we'll do something else that's completely different. But in any event, uh, that's sort of his argument. He, he thinks that there is no mismatch between the first clause of the Second Amendment and the way it gets implemented today. And he's got an argument in the Heller case for why, you know, for why that might be so. Uh, but I, I don't find it especially persuasive. Yeah, that would be my next question is if that modern approach that you describe uh, focuses on an individual right um, to, to, to home self-defense and hunting, then then what is what remains, what purpose remains um, in that, that prefatory clause referring to well-regulated militias? Is that rendered pretty much surplusage? It seems fairly he, irrelevant. Yeah, I think he would say, well, that was its purpose, and the, a purpose clause can limit what he calls the operative clause. But here the operative clause is clear, and so the purpose clause, you know, it, we would use it to... Uh, shed light on ambiguity, but there's no ambiguity. It's true that now the operative clause has sort of outlived its usefulness for advancing the purpose stated in the purpose clause, but there are other legitimate purposes. Uh, and again, the primary one in Heller is protection against private violence. Okay, so if the the standard set up as to what's protected by the Second Amendment is guns in, in common use, that's a, a bit of a imprecise standard, although not certainly uncommon for the Supreme Court to announce uh, not terribly bright rules, but what, what or have have lower courts done some, done more to, to stake out the boundaries of that rule? For example, taking a, a border case, say, like semi-automatic rifles, have, have they been deemed to be 
common use guns or guns that are instead uh, highly dangerous and, and unusual, so they wouldn't be part of the, the right. Yeah. So one question is, where does this test come from? Uh, Justice Breyer in dissent Heller in Heller says it's a sort of circular because whether it's in common use for uh, by law-abiding citizens for law uh, for lawful purposes, as Justice Scalia says, depends on whether government bans it. He also notes that a new kind of weapon could be unprotected, and, uh, but if the government doesn't act quickly to ban it, then it could come into common use. So those, there are also some questions about the sort of theoretical justification for this test. But then there is, as you say, this further question of what counts as common use. The I think it's pretty clear from the context that Justice Scalia meant to exclude fully automatic rifles, commonly known as machine guns, uh, by that, although it's not clear that that's why that is. Um, there is a federal law that bans the sale of new and relatively recently produced machine guns, but there are, I, I believe, tens of thousands of them out there, maybe even hundreds of thousands out there in circulation, uh, and they can be transferred um, if they were produced before the cutoff date. But in any event, um, you know, during the oral argument that led to the Heller decision, uh, Justice Scalia at one point actually uh, says to the lawyer arguing for upholding the law, well, what are you worried about? You're worried about the machine gun ban. Don't worry about that. And so everyone understands the common use language as meant to say, well, machine guns are different. And then so you say, well, what about semi-automatic rifles? We've had two federal appeals court cases on this question from the Fourth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit. And some judges think that they're not in common use, but the, the more the more judges have gone with the argument that, well, semi-automatic weapons may be in common use, but they can still be banned because you then have the question of, uh, you know, what level of scrutiny applies, right? The fact that something is protected by the Second Amendment doesn't mean it's absolutely protected. It could be in common use, but sufficiently dangerous that the government has a, an interest in banning its possession by, you know, ordinary citizens. And so that's where the action has been so far in the lower courts. There is a debate about what counts as common use. How is it a numerical test? Um, there's also language in the Heller opinion. It's not, not just that it, you can ban it if it's not in common use. It maybe if it's unusually dangerous. So uh, something could be uh, usual in the sense a lot of people have it, but poses a special danger. And in any event, where the lower courts seem to have shaken out so far on this, without further guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court, is that they apply intermediate scrutiny. Uh, and so far, the Fourth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit have upheld substantial restrictions on the uh, possession of semi-automatic rifles, applying intermediate scrutiny. One, one point on, on scrutiny... It, it seemed like the the majority in Heller Scalia's opinion makes a point of saying that they're they're definitely not announcing that the standard is intermediate scrutiny, um, leaving sort of some doubt as to what it is. You, what what was the point of not articulating a more precise standard to be applied to to regulations that do trigger uh, the heightened scrutiny? Um, the what Chief Justice Roberts said during the oral argument, I think, carries over into Scalia's opinion, which is, well, look, this is our first case, really, in which we're going to find an individual right. 
Here we don't have to decide what level of scrutiny applies because if it's anything other than the minimal rational basis test, then the district's law, which bans all handguns effectively, uh, is going to fail it. And let's leave that for a later day. So you can see that as a an exercise of the the virtue that uh, Judge Friendly, for whom uh, Chief Justice Roberts clerked uh, as a young man, used to say that if it's not necessary to decide an issue to decide a case, it's necessary not to decide uh, the issue. And, and I don't think Roberts always follows that that maxim, but it's something that he cares about. And so you could see it as a kind of uh, position of modesty. We'll first tell you that this extreme law is invalid and extreme from their perspective, uh, and then we'll leave to a later day the articulation of the standard. And that's that's not a crazy approach to um, a novel issue. You let the lower courts sort of uh, sort it out in the first instance. They'll come up with a bunch of possibilities, and then you can select from one of those possibilities. What makes this a little odd, though, is it's now been uh, nearly a decade, and the court has decided, depending on how you count, two or maybe two and a half or two and a quarter cases, right? There was Heller in 2008. There was the McDonald case in 2010, which basically says that Heller applies to the states and localities. Then they had a case, a per curiam out of Massachusetts uh, called Caetano, in which they said that the lower court opinion was wrong to reject the possibility that a stun gun could be a protected arm under the Second Amendment because the lower court had said, well, there were no stun guns in 1791. And the court said, well, that's not the way you go about it. You ask whether it's in common use now. But really, it didn't provide much guidance. And so they haven't decided the level of scrutiny because they haven't had a case that provides them an occasion to do so. Although uh, Justice Thomas has been very critical of his colleagues, including quite recently in a case um, out of California, for, he says, allowing the lower courts to say they're applying intermediate scrutiny, but really uh, applying something uh, much more permissive of gun regulation. Yeah, and, and on that point, uh, in another fairly recent piece that you wrote, you sort of did the, the legal math there. You ran through... Uh traditional intermediate scrutiny, um, a potential gun control law that's that has been discussed um, of late and seems to have somewhat broad support, that being um, a law that would raise the age to 21 at, a, at the, the point at which folks could purchase um, guns other than handguns. Already a federal law bans handgun purchases, I understand it, for those under the age of 21. Um, and so you used a, a classic uh, intermediate scrutiny case, one also involving a law that uh, prevented purchase in that case of a particular type of beer um, by by folks under the age of 21, although there the the individuals sort of affected by the law were, were males only. Women under the age of 21 could buy that uh, that lighter beer. Um, tell me a bit about that exercise, and and you you conclude that intermediate intermediate scrutiny very well might knock out a regulation raising the the um, age limit to buy non handguns to 21. Does that sort of prove Justice Thomas's point that that uh, the intermediate scrutiny applied so far hasn't really been robust enough, such, and that we we should, if it had been robust enough, seen more laws knocked down? And then, kind of as a broader point, does that show that maybe the hurdle at the, the judicial level is, is higher than folks might think, and it's not just uh, political impasses that prevent uh, gun control legislation from going forward? 
Sure. So there's a lot there. Let me see if I can back up a little bit. Uh, so for listeners who might not have brushed up on their levels of scrutiny, um, there are officially three levels of scrutiny. And by levels of scrutiny, we just mean how carefully courts review laws that are challenged as unconstitutional. So if a law doesn't uh, infringe any basic rights or use a suspicious, suspicious classification like race or sex or something, it, then rational basis scrutiny applies and virtually everything passes traditional rational basis scrutiny. At the other end, there's so-called strict scrutiny, which applies to laws that employ racial classifications that um, uh, infringe fundamental constitutional rights. Right? And there, the government is supposed to be uh, advancing a compelling interest, and the law is supposed to be narrowly tailored to advance that. And traditional rational, uh, tr excuse me, traditional strict scrutiny is extraordinarily difficult to meet. Uh, Gerald Gunther, who was a constitutional law professor, um, once said that it's strict in theory, fatal in fact. Uh, and so originally there were only those two levels of scrutiny, and then in the 1970s there emerged something in between, what we might think of as the baby bear of scrutiny, uh, intermediate scrutiny. That was originally devised as a means by which to judge sex-based classifications on the theory that sex-based classifications are invidious, but not always because while the government really never has a reason to uh, discriminate on the basis of race, it might have benign reasons on the basis of sex. That at least was the original justification. And so intermediate scrutiny is intermediate between uh, rational basis and strict scrutiny. It requires the government be advancing an important government interest rather than compelling, which is what required for strict or merely rational for uh, rational basis, um, and that the law substantially advance that interest, which is not quite as tight a fit between ends and means as required for strict scrutiny, but certainly tighter than for rational basis. Now, when I teach this stuff to my students, I say, well, those are the official three levels. In fact, there are other levels. There's what's sometimes called rational basis scrutiny with teeth, which gets applied in areas where the court doesn't want to recognize a new suspect or semi-suspect classification, but also is skeptical of what the government is doing. And you see that sometimes in some of the LGBT rights cases. Then there is a kind of watered-down version of strict scrutiny that gets applied in affirmative action cases. Uh, there's a kind of heightened version of intermediate scrutiny that you sometimes see in sex uh, discrimination cases where the government is relying on archaic stereotypes. So that's already at least six levels of scrutiny. Um, but for our purposes, let's just focus on traditional intermediate scrutiny. And the, uh, the example I used, which you referred, is a case called Craig against Boren. Uh, Oklahoma had a law that in general set the drinking age at 21, but it made an exception for 18 and older females who were permitted to buy low alcohol, that is no more than 3.2% alcohol beer, uh, at this earlier age, but not for males. And the ostensible justification for it when this law was challenged in the Supreme Court was that 18 to 21-year-old young women are much less likely to drink and drive than 18 to 21-year-old young men, uh, and therefore it's a permissible distinction, and the court rejected that. They said, yes, it's true that um, the, in, in that age range, the men are more likely to get into uh, accidents, 
uh, when uh, under the influence, but the typical male uh, in that age range is extremely unlikely to drive drunk, and so it's not fair to tar all of them uh, on the basis of the actions of a few. If you're going to apply intermediate scrutiny, there's got to be something more than a 0.2% correlation, which is roughly what they had. So what I said in this piece to which you referred was, well, you might have the same logic, um, not about the difference between 18-year-old girls and 18-year-old boys, but between 18-year-olds and 21-year-olds, right? Is it the case that uh, 18 to 20-year-olds are much more likely to engage in gun violence than 21, those 21 and over? Uh, and there is something of a correlation between likelihood of engaging in gun violence and age. There's a certain peak age for, for th- that risk. But just as in the uh, alcohol case, the typical uh, 18 to 21-year-old is extremely unlikely to engage in gun violence. And so if intermediate scrutiny means you can't tax all of the young men with the sins of a few when it comes to drinking, the question is why doesn't it mean the same thing when it comes to uh, having a firearm? Uh, so my the upshot of this analysis is, well, maybe if you applied traditional intermediate scrutiny, and Craig against Boren is thought to be a case of traditional intermediate scrutiny, that would mean that raising the age to uh, 21 to purchase a, um, a rifle, and you'd also want to close the loophole for handguns that are sold from, you know, other than by authorized dealers, that maybe that, that would fail intermediate scrutiny. Um, I then considered an objection to this, which I think may be a good objection, which is there is a difference between applying intermediate scrutiny because of a sex-based classification, um, where the sex-based classification turns on age, and applying intermediate scrutiny because of a restriction on the availability of firearms based on age, because you're going to have to set some minimum age, right? You're not going to say, well, you can't you can't ban the sale of guns to three-year-olds. Uh, so there's got to be some minimum age, and then you say, well, maybe you know, why why isn't 21 as good at, good an age as any other age? And I think what the people who have begun to challenge these laws are arguing in court is, well, 18 is the sort of presumptive age of citizenship, uh, and you know, there's a fundamental right to vote, and there's a fundamental right to uh, own a firearm and possess a firearm under the Second Amendment, there isn't a fundamental right to drink, uh, and so that distinguishes it. So that's that's where I'm sort of left. What does that mean about the doctrine? Uh, I think Justice Thomas is likely to agree with the analysis I've just set forth. I think there's a good chance Justice Gorsuch might as well, maybe even uh, Justice Alito. I don't see more than three votes for that proposition, but I don't think it's because I'm wrong. I think it's because uh, the rest of the court would perceive striking down a law setting the minimum age at 21 as, you know, unreasonable in some way. Uh, and I'm not sure how they would rationalize it, but they might end up reject either rejecting intermediate scrutiny or saying it applies in a different way in this context. Uh, but I, so you, you asked, is there a sort of threat to what we think of as sort of modest gun regulation? Uh, from the current doctrine, and I think if you take the doctrine at its at face value, the answer might be yes. Although I would not predict that that's how the court would come out. One 
other hurdle that's sort of more symbolic than actually doctrinal that you've also cited in some recent writing is just the, the symbolic effect of the Heller decision. So as we've unpacked it in our conversation, you, you've noted that it, it does, getting into the weeds of it, allow for a good amount of, of regulation, um, particularly of any sort of arms that aren't terribly common. And as you've also said, the court in general might be interpreting the, the Second Amendment doctrine in such a way that it wouldn't be too inclined to apply intermediate scrutiny with, with too many teeth. Um, but just the idea that the overarching headline point of U.S. or D.C. First Heller um, was that there is this individual right, folks can bear arms. Um, that's sort of the, the point that folks take home about it, making uh, sort of the political sensibilities against gun control perhaps stronger and maybe the folks pushing for gun control legislation a bit more timid because of that symbolic effect. Is that a fair uh, surmise what you're, you're, you're saying? Yes. The, you know, I, I live in a college town that is um, not that far from some very rural areas, and I ride my bicycle uh, in those rural areas. And I, you know, as soon as I get a couple miles outside of the college town, I see signs critical of uh, a law we have in New York that was passed in the wake of the Sandy Hook uh, shooting saying, uh, repeal the SAFE Act, which is the acronym for the, uh, the New York law. And then it says something like, you know, support the Second Amendment. Now, what the people who are putting those signs up are saying is not necessarily that they think that this New York law violates the letter of Heller and McDonald, although there are legal challenges that have been brought making that claim. Uh, what they're saying more broadly is that the Second Amendment, as construed by the Supreme Court in Heller and McDonald, uh, has a value in public debate. I sometimes like to think of as constitutional politics as opposed to constitutional law. And there's no doubt that Supreme Court rulings in all sorts of areas have a gravitational pull that goes beyond their literal application. So think about Brown against Board of Education, which only invalidated de jure segregation in on the basis of race in public schools and didn't really do much in terms of practical effect uh, for nearly a decade because of foot dragging uh, and the difficulty of getting compliance, but had an enormous symbolic impact in terms of, you know, sort of uh, kickstarting the civil rights movement that you know, used it as, uh, as a symbol. You know that's that so that can be true in, in in multiple directions. It depends on on the case, obviously. But but these cases are prominent and they affect the public imagination, not just the litigation of particular cases. Briefly, we could touch on a an op-ed in the New York Times from last week from a retired Supreme Court justice, Justice Stevens, which made a a fairly extreme call to repeal the Second Amendment altogether. Um, I just wanted to get your your take on that. And in particular, in your article, you responded to the the worry from the left of political center, um, which, as you describe it, is threefold. One, that uh, Justice Stevens' suggestion that the Second Amendment need be repealed for any progress to take place suggests that nothing could be done with it in place, that with Heller in place, um, there's no room for gun control legislation. And also, um, the worry is that you know that's just not a realistic thing that could happen. And finally, that his op-ed could really 
motivate folks on, on the other side of the issue. Um, you say those words are kind of overblown, right? Well, I guess, so overblown is, I think, not exactly my, my position. My position is we don't know. So let's, let's take those in order, right? It's not true that nothing can be done with Heller in place, and Justice Stevens acknowledges that, but what he also says is that what he thinks is necessary, which is really comprehensive gun control that, of the sort that you see in some other democratic countries where it's virtually impossible for private individuals to own firearms, he says that you certainly couldn't do. Uh, under existing doctrine, and I don't think anybody would deny that. Uh, so he says, he, you know, if if you're persuaded by him, and maybe people aren't, but if you are persuaded that what we really need is much stronger and much more comprehensive gun control, then I think he's right. You can't do that under the existing legal decisions. Is repeal possible? No, I don't think repeal is practically possible, right? You would, would need a two-thirds vote in each house of Congress and then majority votes in three-quarters of the state legislatures or constitutional conventions, right? Uh, the um, There's no way, given our current politics, that you could actually repeal the Second Amendment. Um, and indeed, if you could, then you probably wouldn't need to because that would mean that other, you know, the politics would have so changed, you probably would have different people on the Supreme Court who might vote to overturn Heller and McDonald and so forth. Uh, so, so yes, Repeal is, as a practical matter, impossible in the foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean that it's worthless to call for repeal. There's a concept in political science, in political science called the Overton window, which you can think of as the, the space for uh, acceptable political debate and opinion. And, um, you know, so currently the Overton window does not include comprehensive uh, regulation and restriction of firearms. If Stevens gets people to take seriously the idea of repeal of the Second Amendment, that could shift the Overton window, not in the sense that it's going to happen, but now um, the the leftmost point on the spectrum is farther to the left, and so positions that you might have thought of as unlikely now look more like they're centrist positions. And we've seen this on other issues as well, uh, again, in, in multiple directions. So I, I think there is often value in stating a radical position, even if you're you're unlikely to get that radical position adopted, because it's a way of thinking about other positions in the debate. The final objection is that this is counterproductive because it will mobilize the NRA and people who support gun rights who can now say, you see, uh, we were not, we were right when we said all along that if you allow waiting periods or gun-free school zones, right, that's just the tip of the iceberg. What the gun control people will demand eventually is complete prohibition. Uh, they really are coming for all of our guns. And what I said about that is, yeah, that's probably true, but it's not as if the people who take that position aren't already mobilized. This is something they can point to, but if they didn't have this, they would point to something else. And it's very hard to predict when that kind of backlash is going to dominate over the other kinds of effects. So, you know, I think what we see on this issue is... There's broad support for a range of sort of what are sometimes called common sense gun measures that are modest. Um, even those have a hard time getting enacted. But 
one one effect of stating out a bold position could be sort of polarization. And you might think, well, polarization isn't going to get you uh, effective legislation, but it might if what it does is it activates uh, not just the folks who are opposing gun regulation, but the p- folks who are proposing it, right? So that you can imagine some people saying, well, even the people who want gun control legislation only want these modest measures. I'm, why bother? But if they say, well, hey, I can actually get something very substantial done. Let's you know, go with the Stevens proposal. You could see them getting involved. Uh, again, I, I don't know which effect is likely to be larger. They have, there are all sorts of interaction effects. The impact of uh, laws, of proposals, is it's, it's like the weather often, right? It's very complex. It's got... It's uh, little variations at one point can lead to all sorts of un- unanticipated consequences. And so my, my basic message is that if if you're freaking out because you think, oh my goodness, Stevens has said this is going to be counterproductive, uh, maybe relax a little bit because, you know, you, you just don't know um, what what's going to lead to what uh, in this sort of uh, chaotic environment. Maybe, yeah, just setting aside the impact that his op-ed might have on, on gun policy, do, do you have thoughts on it? central thesis that the Second Amendment should be repealed, or is it the sort of thing that's so improbable it's maybe not worth uh, trying to figure out whether it's right or wrong? Well, so if I were right, and here's how I would think about it. If I were writing a constitution for a, you know, a a modern country, uh, would I include something like the Second Amendment? I think the answer is almost certainly no, but I would want either as a matter of explicit constitutional text or some in some other way to recognize that there is a right of self-defense because I think the right of self-defense is is sort of fundamental is protected at common law um, and, and that that would have that potentially would have some implications in cases involving firearms um, not most of the time but you know the 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 image that Justice Scalia paints in Heller is this image of, you know, the vulnerable individual and there's there's an intruder at night and and the the vulnerable innocent person needs to grab their gun from their their nightstand and and ward off the the intruder. And that's a powerful image. And I think, you know, that's, that's real. But, you know, there are all sorts of other images, right? You know, there are the people who are, are using their guns to commit suicide when um, if they attempted suicide using some other means, they would be much less likely to be successful. Um, You know, that has to go into the calculus as well. And so I think that this is a sufficiently complicated policy question that I I don't think, apart from this question of, you know, self-defense and, you know, extremists, I, I don't think as a general matter it's the sort of thing that ought to be decided by constitutional law as opposed to uh, through policy debates and not the ordinary legislative process. Of course, I'm not writing a constitution from scratch. Nobody's asked me to do that. Uh, so we live in a, the society we live in, which includes the, the Second Amendment. You know, I guess I would say I'm not going to devote a lot of my uh, intellectual energy towards advocating repeal of the Second Amendment, but I, I, I don't regret the fact that Justice Stevens is Doing that, I do think that does uh, contribute to the public debate. Okay, then um, starting to, to wrap up, um, I know this, this will be a question that uh, has a lot of 
sort of unknowable variables that, that go into it. But say you reprise your, your 2000 piece talking about what the Second Amendment means in the current moment, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Do you have any thoughts on kind of what way the the constitutional doctrine might be trending? Obviously, hard to, to forecast. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the short answer is no, but I'll tell you a story. So many years ago, um, this was when, before Justice O'Connor had retired, I was talking to a colleague who teaches at another law school, and we were at a constitutional law conference. And he said to me, he said, you know what the worst part about being a constitutional law professor is? He said, 80% of the time, it feels like the job is trying to read Sandra Day O'Connor's mind. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't like to think of my job as making predictions either about how particular justices are going to vote, for which I don't have that much expertise, although I admit I know more than a layperson, uh, but I don't think I have any expertise about the other thing I don't like to do, which is you know predicting who's going to win presidential and Senate elections, which is going to affect the composition of the Supreme Court and therefore how they're going to rule on a variety of issues. So, you know, um, I, I guess what I would say is you're asking two different sorts of questions. One question is, you know, who's going to be on the Supreme Court and how will they rule? That's one kind of question. Another kind of question is, regardless of who's going to be on the Supreme Court, where is this issue going? And I guess I find the second kind of question in some ways more interesting, because I tend to think of the Supreme Court doctrine as, over the long run, roughly tracking uh, popular opinion. Uh, sometimes it's a leading indicator, as it was in the LGBT rights cases. Um, sometimes it's a lagging indicator, but it's never all that far from where public opinion is. And I think on gun issues, we are, as on a lot of things, we're pretty polarized. And polarization in our legal system means the status quo remains. And so I'm not, I, I guess I would be surprised if things look very different uh, 10 or 20 years from now, uh, unless there has been some, you know, enormous event that disrupts things. And, you know, it looks like, you know, lots of kids being killed at school does not count as a sufficiently enormous event to disrupt things. So, you know, I, I guess I hope that things are, the status quo remains because that would mean we haven't had a, you know, a truly horrific, uh, even worse set of horrific events. Okay, maybe just one last one. We've been speaking about uh, political forces and, and legal forces that bear upon where, you know, gun policy can and, and will go. Uh, and a, sort of a presupposition to that sort of separation is that is that the political process and the judicial process are separate entities uh, oriented towards different designs, um, at least somewhat. Um, and you wrote about 10 years ago a book called No Litmus Test uh, Law versus Politics, which um, sort of makes that, that same point that um, the law and, and, and rendering legal decisions must be different from politics. It must be more than just sort of politics by other means. Is it, is it an important message then? And I guess the, the, the skepticism that, that the general public has about whether judges use their politics to make decisions has always been present in our, our country. But it, it seems even more so now. And 
what are your thoughts on on that message after some um, events of the recent decade um, that might suggest otherwise that really uh, judging is sort of extension of politics like um, for example the the Senate holding open the Supreme Court seat for over a year and refusing to hold hearings and, and things along that line so I don't think I ever claimed uh, either that politics doesn't affect the law or that political considerations or, or don't substantially overlap with legal considerations uh, so you know um, confirmation processes or as in the case of Merrick Garland the lack of a confirmation process right? that's always political um, presidents use ideological and political considerations in deciding whom to nominate um, senators uh, who support the nomination uh, are relying on political considerations although they won't admit it uh, and will, will accuse the people who are voting against it of relying on political considerations so yes yeah, so, so it's not surprising that political actors like presidents and senators constantly are making political calculations in deciding who judges are and I think that the judges uh, often uh, have to face questions to which the law doesn't supply a clear single answer and that when that happens judges with different political backgrounds different values will reach different conclusions so when I said law versus politics in the title of that book all I meant to say was that the law isn't only politics not that it isn't any politics and I think this brings us back to where I began with Judge Reinhardt, right? It would, you know, I would have to be a great fool if I thought that Judge Reinhardt's values uh, and, you know, values that also informed uh, his views about politics played no role in how he decided cases. They played a very large role. I don't think larger than anybody, any other judges, but a large role because uh, the cases that get litigated to federal appeals courts and even more so to the Supreme Court are by definition cases in which the law is unclear. You don't need a court to resolve a case where the law is crystal clear. Courts take those take cases where there is wiggle room, and the more wiggle room there is, the more likely that judges and justices with different values will decide those cases differently. Um, the when I say that law isn't just politics, what I mean though is that there are certain techniques uh, that judges use in deciding cases, and that if they're being honest, as I believe Judge Reinhardt always was, and I think Justice Kennedy always was, and I think most judges and justices, even those I disagree with, uh, typically are, if they're being honest, they'll acknowledge that uh, there are cases where the law prevents them from reaching what they think is the best outcome. So so I, I don't think I've changed my view uh, since I wrote that book. I think we have a great many illustrations of how the areas of overlap between law and politics, but I don't think that that means there aren't still some areas where there's a distinction. Okay, uh, it's a good place to leave it then. Professor Michael Dorff from Cornell Law School, thanks very much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me go on. And with that, our program for April 6th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to extend sincere thanks once more to my guest, Professor Michael Dorff from Cornell Law School. Thanks go also to Nick Perez for all his production help 
this week, and to Key Toe and our IT department for helping deliver this podcast via the, the podcast app, where some of you may be tuning into it right now. Next, also go to our editor, David Houston. Don't forget that California CLE credit is available for listeners. Just find a short true-false test appended to this podcast on our dailyjournal.com site. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Thank you.